Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Tension, increased heartbeat, flushing in my face, thoughts about wanting to leave and escape and run away. I felt as though he'd slapped me. My heart raced, tears leapt to my eyes. I was speechless. Shame. It's an intense feeling, one we do our best to avoid. And it's an emotion with a bad reputation. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And yet, shame can sometimes be a useful tool in human relations. A signal that behavior has gone over a line. You assault somebody, you get escorted out the building, and that's it. A way to bring truth to power. His desperate denials since he was exposed have only made matters worse. Rather than come clean, every step of the way, he's insulted the public's intelligence. A declaration that a major moral lapse has taken place. Today is a day that we've been waiting for, and certainly one that will be uplifted in our history. Some philosophers see a positive side to shame, and they're looking across cultures to find it. The bad rap of shame is, as far as I can tell, almost entirely North American. It's not worldwide. The main point of all the Chinese philosophers was that you need to look at yourself, meaning not only look at your ego, but also you look at your healthy sense of engagement to other people. And I think if we accept that those are things that we demand of each other, then shame has a role because shame is the emotion that you should feel if you're violating well-conceived social norms or not being a selfish creep. In this episode, Ideas producer Lisa Godfrey explores the upside of shame. Sometimes it's the absence of a particular thing that makes you more conscious of it. Shame. We have never calibrated for covering someone with no shame. That isn't what the White House is running around trying to figure out. How to During do the times of Trump in particular, but antecedent to that, I kept thinking and watching journalists write about how shameless Trump was and how he had no sense of shame. And I agreed with that. And he wasn't the only one. And I started to think why is it that all these other traditions, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, every African tradition that I studied and teach about sometimes, about which I'm a complete amateur, but I work at it, 
everybody else thinks shame is a good emotion. And in the West, we think it's a terrible emotion. I'm Owen Flanagan, and I'm James B. Duke, Professor of Philosophy and Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. My latest book is called How to Do Things with the Emotions, The Morality of Anger and Shame Across Cultures. came out recently with Princeton University Press. Owen Flanagan contends that we need to think carefully about our emotions, how we express shame and anger, two emotions that he sees as related. He's come to that idea through his work as a cross-disciplinary scholar, someone who takes a cross-cultural approach. He's aware of the potential pitfalls. A kind of imposition or imperialism of ideas, making the same mistake that they say that psychology made about inferring from Western people what everybody is like. The other mistake would be, oh, I'm just going to go find in Confucius or Buddha what I antecedently think are the answers to my questions. That's a terrible way to approach other cultures. When it comes to thinking about our emotions in the West, we come at it with some ready assumptions. In my book, the sort of motto, guiding motto, is to ask people to sort of reconsider one view we have about the emotions, which is the view that my emotions are like knee jerks. When I go to the doctor and the doctor hits the right spot on my knee, the knee just jerks. And I could will to I'm blue in the face that it not jerk, but it, damn it, it's going to jerk if she hits it right. Or that emotions are like the pupil contractions to light. They're just automatic. I can't control them. That's one view. But I think it's wrong. And I think it leads to a kind of complacency about the emotions, and it leads to a kind of permission to feel whatever way one feels and say, well, that's just the way I feel. With the rise of self-help and pop psychology, we've come to believe that just feeling what you feel is healthy. Namely, what Carol Tarvis calls the ventilationist view of the emotions. It's the kind of common view that is very important to express how you feel for reasons they're complicated reasons. Sometimes people say, it's just good to get your emotions out. Otherwise, you keep it in and it will seep out in ways that are just bad or undesirable or hurt you or hurt other people. So Owen Flanagan proposes that we take a step back and we consider our emotions as things shaped by external forces. Emotions as things we do rather than just natural states that we helplessly inhabit. So why do I think that emotions are things we do? Well, one reason is if you just look across cultures, how people do emotions that we think are automatic, you'll find huge cultural variation. Now, this at least would indicate that emotions are things that we train up. Take anger, for example, an emotion that we might consider really spontaneous. So I make you angry. You come at me with angry words. Maybe you even come at me uh, with angry uh, fists, sticks and stones. In fact, most North Americans will say that when they get angry, they want to do something to the other person, like punch them in the nose. Luckily, we don't mostly do that, but we feel like that. And yet, broadly speaking, other societies don't. If you ask Japanese people what they want to do when they're angry, they say they want to leave the room. So right out of the gate, it shows that there are different, what I call norms and scripts for how to enact an emotion that feels automatic. There's also all kinds of findings about the way parents 
relate to angry children. So German and North American parents meet children's anger with anger of their own. And anger escalates until it peters out. Japanese mothers basically choose to do what the behaviorists used to call extinguish anger in children by completely ignoring it and by not responding in anger. So these are the beginnings of at least the view that we learn how to do emotions according to all kinds of norms of both feeling, behavior, expression differently in different cultures. Owen Flanagan sees us doing a lot of anger these days, and he speaks as someone who witnessed another furious era. I lived, I was a college student in uh, the late 60s and early 70s, and I was in graduate school throughout the 70s. Those were angry times, but they were also very hopeful in the sense that uh, the civil rights movement, of course, was uh, you know very important and big in the United States in the 60s. The Vietnam War was going on. There was Viet- anti-Vietnam protests. We want the world and we want it now! Feminism was becoming an important thing. The Stonewall uprising for gay and lesbian rights in British Village took place. So there were all these very, very important civic issues about human rights, justice, and equality. And uh, we were marching a lot. I say in the book that we shall overcome was the M of our our time. And we were hopeful. There was idealism. Martin Luther King Jr. had taught us that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. It's long, though. And of course, every generation has to figure out the fact that, damn it, it's a lot longer than we thought. How long is it? You know, and maybe it's part of an eternal project. It doesn't happen fast. In any case, those were angry times, but they were also op- filled with optimism and hope. Fifty more years of inequity and injustice with a new side order of environmental emergency, social chaos, and now war will have its effect on optimism and hope. At the same time, Owen Flanagan sees many of us doing anger in a particular way now. It's more infantile anger. It's quick anger. People don't discuss and have conversations about what is upsetting them. They spew venom at each other. The anger that's modeled is a kind of payback anger, which is like, oh, you hurt me, and now I'm going to zing you right now and hurt you right back. There are public figures doing this too now, powerful individuals who undermine and crush others with anger in public and seem to feel no remorse about it. The outburst from the Tesla chief executive appeared to be in response to an interview where Mr. Unsworth criticized his decision to send a mini submarine to the cave to help. Are you talking to me? Yeah, it was just a follow-up of what I just asked you, sir. Listen, you ready? We have the president of Finland. Ask him a question. I have one for him. I just wanted to follow up on the one that I asked you. Which did was, you hear what me? Did you want? Did you hear me? Yes, Ask sir. him a question. I, I will. But I've my... given you a long answer. Don't be rude. <laughs> no, sir. I don't want to be rude. I just wanted you to have a chance to answer the question that I asked I've you. I've answered everything. It's a whole hoax. And you know who's playing into the hoax? People like you. And, the and it makes me feel terrible for young people because, on my view, that emotions are things you learn. 
then the norms and the scripts we're learning for anger have no good role models. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, blah, blah. Productive anger still exists, of course. Economy, net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. I mean, anger is justified. <laughs> There's righteous anger, which is obviously totally justified for higher good. I will continue to say this, Mr. Speaker. There is nothing Nothing to be proud of for Indigenous peoples in this institution. There is nothing for anyone to be patting themselves on the back. In fact, I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! Collective voices like that raised to be heard, demanding that society and institutions change. But in politically polarized North America, there are other angry groups, too. Laying claim to extreme truths and morality on their terms. Standing up against these uh, tyrannical uh, mandates, they're all just signs pointing towards uh, socialism and ultimately communism. Where did freedom of choice go? Where did uh, my body, my choice go? Destructive anger seems to feed on itself. It's not serving us in North America particularly well. So back to Owen Flanagan's suggestion that we reflect on our emotions in order to improve them. You might say, well, once I'm formed, I do anger the way I do anger. And I'm, you know, a North American, not Japanese. That, of course, is true. But what one sees in many other cultures is the idea that if you don't think of your emotions as mere reflexes, but you think of yourself as a person who should always be watching and controlling your own behavior and self-cultivating. So self-cultivating is a common idea in classical Chinese philosophy, classical Buddhist philosophy. And the idea is that if you see that any emotion is causing you trouble, you could actually get in there and leverage it in, as an adult in the same way some people leverage the development of the emotions with children. Looking at anger and its effects led Owen Flanagan to that other emotion that he sees as related, shame. Social media furnishes us with plenty of evidence that we're frequently doing both these emotions, yet culturally speaking, one of them seems to earn more shaming. Shame is the gremlin who says, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The TED Talk star turned best-selling self-help writer Brene Brown sums it up this way. The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And here's what you even need to know more. Guilt inversely correlated with those things. So I do think people like Brown and other people are onto something about a certain way of educating, treating each other that is absolutely awful. But I think the state that they're getting at is what is best described as self-loathing. But Owen Flanagan argues that when we feel that way, we are hearing something that isn't actually there. And if you think about emotions as things we can control... A standard view is something like this. 
if I steal the last cookie from the cookie jar and my mother says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for stealing the last cookie from the cookie jar, she actually is telling me that I'm an unworthy or bad human being. But she's not doing that. She's just saying you should be ashamed of yourself for taking the cookie. There's nothing about the way, if you look at the child developmental literature, the way we use words like shame or invite people to feel ashamed of themselves that asks them to think something about their whole character. You see this even more clearly in every other culture. Other cultures which say you should be ashamed of yourself for taking the last cookie in the cookie jar or you should be ashamed of yourself for not sharing with your sister are not inviting people to feel ashamed about their entire personhood. The empirical claim that shame is used to be about a whole person and guilt is only used about acts just doesn't show up as true when you look empirically. Owen Flanagan is a professor of psychology and neuroscience, as well as a philosopher, and he thinks there are some assumptions coming out of a certain approach in psychology. All the tests, and this is where I think Renee Brown gets some of her work. There's a test, which is a famous test, Tosca. It's widely used to figure out whether people are guilt-prone or shame-prone. But every question about shame in it are things like this. Suppose that I just took a philosophy test, but I didn't study. You didn't study and you got back a 50. I got back a 50. So what would I think? I might think something like this. Hmm, I should have studied for the test. Or I might think I'm a worthless human being with no philosophical talent. And that they say, well, people who think I should have studied more use guilt. People who think I'm a worthless piece of crap who never should have gotten this business anyway, are shamed. That sets it up entirely so that shame would be a terrible emotion to feel. But that isn't the way most people use or think about shame. And then, of course, what is found next is that people who feel after everything in their life goes wrong, that they are the fault, that they are terrible. They do have more addiction, eating disorders, anxiety disorders, depression, everything. But my argument is that looking at the cross-cultural psychology of this, looking at actually the way we use words, that is not ordinary, everyday shame. It's a self-loathing problem. And that's terrible. And parents and cultures which make people, especially in virtue of their race, their gender, their sexual preference, feel loathing are doing something awful to them. And we should never do that to people. But that's not about shame. That's about self-loathing. Sometimes, though, the dance between self-loathing, guilt, and shame can be complicated. My purpose this evening is just to make a few comments on the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I asked Owen Flanagan about the language of Alcoholics Anonymous and the ways that shame comes up in the language of recovery, despite the fact that addiction has been classified as a disease by medical authorities for a long time now. 
I thought about this because I myself, uh, my next book actually is called What It's Like to Be an Addict, of which I uh, was one. Okay, so let's talk about addiction, drug addiction or alcohol addiction. There are several different models about how we ought to think about addiction. So one model is the disease model. And usually we say to people that you shouldn't feel guilty or ashamed if you have a disease. Easier said than done. In the rooms of AA, in my experience, people will, will most often analogize addiction to diabetes. If alcoholism or drug addiction is a disease, then depending on where you're situated informationally, and it's like type 2 diabetes or like lung cancer, it is something about which you participate in yourself. And it would have been better if you had stopped yourself from smoking, say, earlier in the case of lung cancer. And about that, you know, maybe water under the bridge is not something you should feel guilty or ashamed of. It's water under the bridge. But you can see how, given that you have some control there, people might say, well, you should have, you should have, you should have, and feel that way themselves. I actually, in my, in my paper on the shame of addiction, think that shame can be self-motivating. If you're shamed and humiliated by other people, that's not particularly good. But if you feel, as many, many addicts and alcoholics will feel, fairly powerless and can't figure out how to get yourself out of this, a common way to get yourself out of it is going to meetings in church basements with other people who have had the same difficulty sharing stories and helping save each other. So there's a lot of shame, guilt, regret in those rooms, and it can be helpful therapeutically to people. Shame can give people a common language, a way to delineate community expectations and boundaries. It can be a socializing emotion, says Owen Flanagan. When a culture is more individualistic than collective, and it has a religious tradition based around individual salvation, guilt is usually seen as more present than shame. It turns out in the psychological literature, when you look at North Americans, we don't distinguish as much as we think between guilt and shame. But think about if a, if a parent is trying to teach her child to share with her siblings, and the child isn't good at it first. Parents might say something like, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm not sure if they say you should feel guilty. They might use the word language of shame. And the idea is that you're not engaging in a communal practice, which it would be good for everyone, if, and you'll learn this yourself eventually, if everyone conforms to the sharing practice. It's more fun. Hoarding the toys is just isn't as much fun <laughs> as building something together with your brothers and sisters. So, so shame has this social aspect. We as a social community have come to believe in these norms, like sharing norms, and you should be ashamed of yourself if you don't share with other people. But norms are always in flux. They're always fiercely debated, subject to erosion and change. When morality was just organized around religious belief, norms were carved in stone. But as we become more and more secular, then there's an interesting question. Well, what binds us? Why are we supposed to share with our sisters and brothers? Why at the social level should we be in favor of universal health care, et cetera, et cetera? Well, we're in cultural situations now, political situations, where the answer no longer is what God said. 
The answer is what we together collectively have determined are the best ways to flourish as human beings. And that means that norms and rules and desirable behaviors are shared social practices. That doesn't mean that they're, they don't stand on any legs. No, they stand on the legs of human history, discoveries over world historical time about why we should love our neighbor. What are the best practices? How do we show our basic humanity? What is the meaning of justice and rights? And I think if we accept that those are things that we demand of each other, then shame has a role because shame is the emotion that you should feel if you're violating well-conceived social norms or not being a selfish creep. Owen Flanagan, author of How to Do Things with Emotions, The Morality of Anger and Shame Across Cultures. He's a professor of philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience at Duke University, and a guest on this episode of Ideas called Reclaiming Shame. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Shame. It's often seen as a dark and discouraging emotion, though it has many shades. There are different types of shame, social shame, moral shame, internal shame, external shame. So it's always important to see shame in a holistic picture of diversity. Bongre Siak reflects on shame in his work as a philosopher and writer. In my recent books, Naturalization, Human Flourishing, and Asian Philosophy, and Moral Psychology of Confucian Shame, I developed an interdisciplinary approach to moral psychology from the viewpoints of moral emotions, such as empathy, shame, and flourishing, and Asian Philosophy, Korean and Chinese Confucianism. He's noticed the different ways it is understood and practiced in different cultures, such as his native South Korea and the United States, where he now lives and teaches. He thinks about shame as a force for good in social relations. I have huge interest in shame in a positive side. We love to be open to each other, humbly interacting with others, listen to others' feelings. That's the whole idea behind positive shame. Hello, I'm Bangre Siap, 
an associate professor of philosophy at Albany University in Reading, Pennsylvania, United States. My primary research interest is in the fields of cognitive and comparative philosophy of mind and moral psychology. Thank you for inviting me to discuss shame today. Thank you. He's in conversation with Ideas producer Lisa Godfrey. So shame has a long history in philosophical thought. How far back does it go? Well, it does go to antiquity, I think. In ancient uh, Greece, we have several philosophers discuss shame. Aristotle, for example, discussed shame in several of his books. And even before Aristotle, there are many ancient texts in Greek tradition mentioned shame in connection with courage, in connection with uh, strong power. And in Chinese tradition, we have many books in early Chinese texts mention shame as major human virtue. Virtue. Virtue, yes. Moral disposition that person can cultivate to become a better human being. What interested you personally about um, delving into shame as, as a research subject? I approach shame from the perspective of self. So there's major psychological politics going on within self. So we can support self. Uh, we can strengthen self. But at the same time, we fear that our selves can experience anxiety and depression too. We fear that uh, we can give some negative impressions to others so that we lose our social reputation. But shame is not necessarily negative. It can be constructive. And I found wonderful discussions in ancient Chinese texts about shame being positive human virtue. And according to those texts, shame is not necessarily negative and depressive. It would be great sense, healthy sense of inner moral sense that can motivate a person to become better and better every day. And which specific philosophers were talking about shame? The Confucian tradition existed even before philosopher named Confucius. And the Confucius uh, renovation of this whole tradition is that the best way to understand human person is the heart. It's called the heart-mind. It's not just a mind, it's heart. So it's, it's a kind of a uh, combination of intellectual understanding and your emotional dedication to the core piece of human person. But the important part of that is this heart is open to other people. It's not just on your own, but it's always interactive with others. And Confucius said that shame is very important human disposition. And there's a passage saying that an ideal uh, official, the government official, which is the great job at that time, should have shame. So that was the beginning. Things have changed since then. Exactly. If you lose shame, it's a shameless person. The following generations, we have philosopher Mencius. And Mencius said straightforwardly that shame is one of the foundational moral emotions that human beings have. And he specifically said that shame is very important for human beings. And followed by Shenzhi. Shenzhi is the, the next philosopher in line. And he also distinguished different types of shame. For example, you're shamed by dress 
poorly in front of other people. You shamed by eating uh, cheap food in front of other people. He said, that's okay, but you have to be shameful of yourself when you don't feel inappropriate by doing some bad things, losing your sense of ethics and morality. It's a, it's a really important loss of your core person. So it, this is the whole tradition really underline and, and highlight the meaning of shame, positive meaning of shame, and uh, moral and ethical implications of shame. You know, any of us who've experienced shame, having grown up in the Western tradition, it feels so bad, as you say, anxiety-inducing, depressing, obliterating almost. So tell me how the ancient Chinese what was different about it that they came to see it as something that could be self-cultivating? The main point of um, these early Chinese philosophers was that you need to look at yourself, meaning you not only look at your ego and not only look at your vulnerable self, but also you look at your healthy sense of engagement to other people, such as you can be humbly great. That's the whole idea behind the positive sense of shame, that you, you are a good person, but you can also can lower yourself to understand others' pain and suffering, and you can reach out to help other people. So it, it's basically the idea of uh, a great humility or humbleness. Humbleness means you're lowering yourself, but it's not because you're small because it's great. You, you, you are a good person and you can accommodate others' viewpoint. So uh, you be courageous to say, sorry, I'm wrong. And that doesn't hurt your ego. And that's the beginning of a positive shame. And in Western society, people see the negative side of shame, that shame can break the core uh, identity of person that creates uh, depression and anxiety and all the negative psychological uh, situations. But in Asian, uh, Chinese or Japanese or Korean traditions, they look at shame as the wonderful side of human being and healthy sense of ego. It's good ego, not the, uh, the grandiose type of ego. And uh, if you have that, you can always flexibly lowering yourself in front of others, saying that, oh, did I hurt your feelings? I'm sorry. I, I can do better next time. And that sense of humbleness and humility, I think, is the main point of Asian viewpoint of shame. Having grown up in Korea and living in America and seeing both societies, do you think it's because, because there is so much emphasis on on the self alone, even self-help tends to talk about me and how I can improve myself, but not necessarily relationally with others. In fact, others get blamed lots of the time. It's like, avoid that person or that toxic trait in that person. Is it a different sense of the ego and the self then? Exactly. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. There are two basic routes that we understand uh, self. One is self is too strong. Sometimes you can break because it's too strong. And that's when people get angry when they humiliate it. So that's one kind of a side of shame. The other one is self is weak and it's not going to be sustained. So whenever there are bad experience coming in or embarrassing situations coming in, they run away. They try to hide. 
So these are two major negatives on shame. However, we can find something uh, more balanced, which is the uh, self or ego is not too strong and not too weak, and it's really resilient, it's healthy, and it's functioning, and it's engaging, and it's open to other people. And from that viewpoint, any kind of negative experience, I can overcome quite quickly that, oh, I did something wrong. Uh, that's fine. No, I'm a good person, so I can do better next time. And the, the whole idea behind is that I am good and I'm confident, but it's not to the level of I pushing other people to be competent. I'm competent because I can live with you and I can cooperate with you. I can listen to you. So that image of self is absolutely important to understand positive side of shame. And that's what uh, this group of uh, people in happens to be ancient Chinese philosophers picked that up saying, shame is important and you really have to cultivate the sense of shame, not the feeling of shame, but the sense of shame mm. that you can become good human beings. Some of the problem about all of this, I guess I was thinking about the different kinds of people who are a bit shameless. And I thought sometimes a person just has a blind spot. They don't know what they've done is a transgression. And then we have people who really don't seem to feel shame in the same way for whatever reason. So is there a way to know that you have transgressed, that you have done something shameful? I think I have a simple answer and more complicated answer to your question. Simple answer is whenever you feel insensitivity from others, that's the sign that they're not responding to your feelings or perhaps your comments, perhaps your complaints, then that's the, really the beginning of this whole you know, snowball effect. Uh, that's the beginning. But more complicated answer there is there are probably three different times of shamelessness. The first one is thick skin. Thick skin. You're not responding to others' pain and suffering, and you're not considering others' feelings, and you're not understanding some of the negative implications of your comments to others. So thick skin <laughs> is the first one. And the second one is aggressiveness. Shameless person are usually aggressive. They're just pushing their agendas. And the third one is lacking any sense of ethics and morality. And there's a wonderful expression uh, in Korean culture where uh, they describe certain crime as shameless crime and uh, shameless criminal. It's called the pa ryeomchi bum. Pa means destruction and yeomchi means shame. No, so totally losing the sense of shame. And that means psychopathic crime or psychopathic criminals, totally lacking that sense of right and wrong, lacking the sensitivity to others' pain and suffering. So that's really the highest level of uh, shamelessness. So in, in any of these different uh, variances or degrees of shamelessness, the, the bottom line is some type of insensitivity because we all live with other people and we close up just focusing on ourselves and ego. And that's what these ancient Chinese philosophers and that's what these, some of the East, East Asian cultures concerned about. 
And that's the whole idea behind uh, why they think shame is important and why shame can be important part of moral disposition. I know you're not a sociologist, but you do have this perspective of seeing the two different cultures in everyday life. Do you see differences in terms of that concept of shame? Do you, do you see events or circumstances in the U.S. that would be considered shameful and treated differently in, in Korea and, and vice versa? I, I quite see that, uh, to be honest. In the more American uh, environment, people do not want to be shamed because they believe that uh, self or ego is quite important. You're not going to touch that. And uh, because of that, they just sometimes ignore that kind of insensitivity to others' feelings. But the important thing is, even in the same American environment, they emphasize self-confidence. So I think that's a good thing. It's really supporting self-confidence. But I, at the same time, I suggest that, well, self-confidence doesn't mean you're just focusing on your ego and just pushing ego to others. Now, going to more East Asian or Asian uh, cultures, uh, the whole, I shouldn't say whole, but uh, but many important stages of uh, moral and intellectual development, they really emphasize you really have to consider other people first. You always look at your social surroundings and you really have to be uh, thankful to your teachers and your parents. So this uh, cultural setup really emphasizing a uh, person in the middle of this whole network of support systems, being great uh, gratitude to all these, you know, help from coming outside, be sensitive to others' pain and suffering. And this is the environment they teach and they educate students. So it's a good way to cultivate the sense of shame and to uh, to be more, you know, interactive to others. So I guess that's a bit of a uh, comparative uh, difference, but always, whatever, whether it's American environment or Asian environment, the absolute key is the balance. You have to find the golden middle, which is you have your self-confidence, but you're open to others. One example that is seen as a kind of very different reaction to something East versus West would be Korea's terrible ferry disaster of 2014. The wreck of the Sewol, moored off Mokpo in the southern part of the Korean peninsula, resembles a ghost ship. A visible reminder that continues to haunt the victims' families. A song that names the 250 children who died is played through speakers on the seventh anniversary of the tragedy. Can you talk about that through the lens of shame? Yes, it was a, a several ferry disaster, and uh, about about three hundred people died, mostly students, uh, in a huge ship, a ferry ship. Uh, at that time, I was not in South Korea; I was here in the United States. But I check on media from anguish. To frustration, families of the missing passengers shouting out as they meet with South Korea's president and learn the horrifying details of how the disaster unfolded. 
This video shows the lifeboats still attached to the ferry as it was sinking, as passengers clung for their lives. I realized that there are two polarized reactions to that. One is anger, anger towards government and authorities that they neglect to put security measures so that they could have prevented the event, but that actually happened. So that was anger, but predominantly was also the shame. Shame in that context is shared responsibility. Uh, we let these bad things happen, and it's, it's our responsibility. Collectively, as a society? Exactly. The Sewol tragedy not only triggered political upheaval in South Korea, it also placed its strictly hierarchical society under the spotlight. Would the victims have been saved, some asked, if they hadn't automatically followed the order to stay in their cabins? So we, we humbly admit that and we respectfully acknowledge that the disaster happened and we are very sorry for that. So uh, on the one hand, it was anger, but on the other hand, it was shared responsibility and uh, sharing their pain and suffering, sharing the whole burden for all Korean people. At the same time, it was terrible because the vice principal of the high school where the the students were from uh, ended his life, despite being indirectly part of it, which would seem to go back to this idea of shame as being an obliteration of self. But do you think it was more than that? Was it trauma plus shame or? Well, uh, again, as I said before, shame has all sorts of different dimensions and characteristics. Some of these are positive, some of these are negative. And uh, on the negative side, in an extreme form of social shame, it's a one type of shame. Uh, some people say it's a toxic shame that uh, whenever the, that kind of strong uh, negative uh, experience touches upon the core piece of person's identity, then people become suicidal. And that's really, really horrible thing that we can see from the negative dimension of shame. So it's all about how we approach and understand self. And that's really important thing in, in, in type of uh, shame experience. In cultures that are increasingly polarized, where where people have many different social opinions, political opinions, where people say, how can I be empathetic to a person who literally hates me because of my skin color or gender or sexuality or whatever? Um, and not that things are completely even, but let's just say the argument over masks or or public health around COVID. If there's no common ground, finding that place of empathy and consideration for others is very challenged. Can you see any way to bringing down the temperature and finding that consideration for others again? Absolutely. If, if people get stressed, they lose sight of some of the important things happening around them and they just focus on themselves. So that's exactly what's happening in some of the shame experiences, that if people feel their self is in great danger, they like to run away or they like to fight. So it's a fight and flight response. And they don't have any middle option. They just either explode or just, just run away. And that's really a dangerous situation. Now, if you look at the, uh, the 
fight side, it, it's the really strengthening the ego or maybe uh, hubris. Hubris is the, uh, you have grandiose uh, image of yourself and you don't compromise that. Whenever bad things happen, you just really fight, go out and fight to regain your honor. And uh, sometimes because of that, uh, there are conflicts happening, uh, you know, struggle all around and people get distressed depressed, all bad things happen. For the same way, if people feel they are weakened and they're not going to sustain their, their ego or self, they just run away. They, they are not responsible. So where should we start? That's really a million-dollar question. And I think there may be two things. One is we need to think about empathy. Empathy is feeling, sharing, Others' feelings. Of course, we are not. We don't have telepathic uh, ability to understand what exactly happening in other person's mind. No, but however, we have natural sense of empathy. So, if you get stressed, if you get angry, just take one second, deep breath, deep breath, and you say two things. Oh, I feel bad, and then you say, Oh. I may hurt others. It's, it's a good exercise, just simply taking a brief moment of time and reflecting upon yourself and think of others. Empathy, sensitivity, self-cultivation. You might be listening to this and thinking that Bong Ray Siak is talking about an idealized world, not this one frequently so brutal. Women and girls were assured by the Taliban they could pursue an education past sixth grade. So it came as a shock when these same women and girls were ordered to leave. Coming from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, and it accuses paramilitary forces, security forces, from Ethiopia's Amhara region of carrying out a campaign of ethnic cleansing against civilians in the neighboring Tigray region in the north of Ethiopia. Cruise missiles falling down, and your children asking you what happened, and you are receiving the first news, which... Infrastructure have been bombed and destroyed by Russian Federation. And you know how many people already died. Can you only imagine what words, how can you explain to your children that full-scale aggression just happened in your country? You know that this is war to annihilate your state, your country. What does an expert on shame like you think when you see shamelessness at the level of geopolitical terror when such intolerance and inhumanity can be perpetuated from human beings one to another? That's a wonderful question to ask. And if you study ancient Greek uh, history, uh, sometimes war can take place because of one person's ego is too big. Be careful about hubris. 
this day and age, in, uh, it's a little bit uh, unimaginable that how can one person's ego can start a war, but where uh, individuals or politicians or any decision makers, they make decisions always in considerations of other people. If not, then the whole, in a way, the system allows the hubris or ego can explode. And that's quite dangerous. Bongray Siak's fellow philosopher and colleague, Owen Flanagan, sees moral shame being turned on its head at times like these. Shame can be weaponized, and it has been. I mean, right now, people inside Russia are being asked to be ashamed were they to, in any way, be opposed to Russia's military operation. I'm ashamed. I haven't been able to live normally for several days. I'm burning with shame. I'm infinitely ashamed of what's happening. It's scary for those who are there and those who are here. It can't be any worse. We're the aggressors and people are dying because of us. And it disgusts me. The good uses of shame depend entirely on having good social practices in place, not bad ones. And that's not something that the emotions, any emotions can do. These emotions work for us and work for political communities and social communities. If you have bad values or bad leaders, then all the emotions, positive ones and negative ones, will and can be used badly. The world shifts and shifts yet again, with new alliances formed and new boundaries erected. Owen Flanagan believes, and he tells his students this, that it's always useful to look outside the borders of your nation, your culture, and your own thinking for solutions. I use a quote from a a famous philosopher and an inspiration to me, Alistair McIntyre, who says this. He says, without understanding of other cultural traditions, we are always in danger of being imprisoned by our own upbringing that we don't see our ways to better practices sometimes. If we think both that we are historical beings and we have on blinders sometimes and we can't see our way out of difficulties, if we're more aware of the large variation in the way cultures do, among other things, the emotions, you should look elsewhere because other people might have ways out of the problems you have that they hit upon by serendipity or by really working hard to develop best and better practices. How much our children in multicultural worlds will be exposed going forward to the large diversity of cultures and many of the healthy ways of doing things remains to be seen. You've been listening to Reclaiming Shame with philosophers Owen Flanagan and Bongre Siak. You can find out more at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey. Web producer for ideas, Lisa Ayuso. Technical producer, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.